Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Sharon Lever. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice Presidents and Principal Analysts, James McQuivy and J.P. Gounder to discuss the pandemic's role in shaping the future of Anywhere work. Welcome both. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start with a little data. In Forrester's Pandemic EX survey, about half of the workers we polled say they want to continue anywhere work in some capacity after the pandemic. How are companies dealing with uh, that dynamic and this concept of anywhere work? Yeah, well, one of the first ways that some companies are responding is they're in denial. We have a lot of people trying to negotiate that, you know, like, well, they say that, but they'll get tired of it, or which actually they haven't. This has been a very stable metric throughout the the entire last year. Uh, some of them are, and in fact, just got a request from a client yesterday saying, can, can we look at that by age? Because I'm really certain that our younger employees don't want to work from home. And, and there is actually a, a relationship there, but still it's nearly half of the younger employees that still want to, at some, at some capacity, work remote in the future. And, and so we're, we're trying to help those companies in the denial or bargaining phase of this come to the realization that this is indeed a, a permanent change uh, and, and that they could model themselves after the companies that have learned to uh, appreciate what's happening, to, to look for other points of data, not just what people want, but whether they're actually productive. And when you do that, Wow, it really opens your eyes to the opportunity here. Maybe I should take a step back. What's anywhere work? Is it the same as remote work? It's a really important point. It's one of the reasons we've decided to try to avoid saying remote work uh, often. Because look, when people talk about remote work, what they mean is do the same job you did, just do it from home. And so we don't have to change our management styles. We don't have to change our leadership practices. We don't have to really change the technology much, you know, just enough to let you simulate being in the office when you are at home. That's remote work. That is not what we're talking about. When we talk about anywhere work, it's about liberating the employees, liberating the workforce and the managers, frankly, to see that their work can be done and in fact should be done from a variety of locations, including the office. And that's why we want to say anywhere. There isn't a distinction between working in an office or working remote. Anywhere workers could be working anywhere on your campus, could be working in a coffee shop where they're meeting with a client, could be meeting at home, could be in any number of places, hence anywhere work. And that is a strategic change. It's an organizational change, and it is definitely a technology investment. And it is a evolution from what is typically a reactive policy. You know, when we think about remote work, it tends to be, well, we'll give a little here and there. This is a much more codified, intentional, proactive policy in which we say improved employee engagement is going to lead to better customer outcomes. And we're going to create a strategy that provides the technological, the cultural, and the leadership resources to make sure that this transition to anywhere work is appropriate and successful. And in theory, anywhere work is beneficial to both the employer and the employee, right? Can you can you kind of outline what those benefits are? What are the benefits to the employee? And then what are the benefits to the employer? 
of anywhere work. Yeah, JP, I'll, I'll have you uh, go deep on this because John, I'll just share with our listeners that we are now in the next report that's building on this, and we've been compiling even more evidence than the original data we led with in our first report about Anywhere work. And it is astonishing the amount of evidence that there is for both sides of that coin, Sharon, that you're talking about, both for the employee and for the employer. I'll I'll start with the employee uh, and then hand it to JP. So from an employee's perspective, what we're looking for is what are the experiences that employees have at work that allow them to bring their best selves to work? And this is an employee experience imperative that we've been touting for years. It's it's not new to the pandemic and, of course, should long outlast the pandemic, which is when someone feels more empowered at work, when they feel they have more flexibility to get the job done, and they feel resourced, those are three of the key drivers of engagement, they perform better. They're happy about it. They can sustain that effort over time rather than burning out. And as a result, uh, the employee feels better. This is what's remarkable. You're not just saying, hey, we'll tweak the environment to get the worker to do more for us. No, you're actually tweaking the environment so that they can do things in a way that they are happier with, they are more engaged with, which helps them feel ready to come back day after day. You know, this is such an important question as well, I think, as we encounter those executives who will say, you know, it sounds kind of hand wavy to me. And so if I talk about the benefits to the organization overall, um, there's quite a number of things. And, and these are actually um a list of tangible and intangible things, but that ultimately are very measurable. So let's start with what our security and risk management analysts have been looking at, which is the rise of business continuity and resiliency as a priority going forward, as something that actually will differentiate you. If you have in place a successful anywhere work strategy, no matter what is going on in the systemic risks encountered in the world, you're gonna have a better time transporting those people to keep business continuity in place. We saw that with the pandemic. Um, All of the metrics James was just talking about fall broadly under the employee experience umbrella, but some of them are very important to your organization. Are you able to attract, recruit, retain the best talent? We see people sort of going off to these Zoom towns, to the exurbs, to rural uh, New Hampshire, to live. These are top talent. Um, And if you then contract that later, that that could be a problem. You're also going to be able to um, improve your recruiting vis-a-vis your competitors. So imagine if you don't have, after the pandemic, a relatively flexible pro-EX, pro-employee policy in place, perhaps incrementally, you're going to lose a candidate here, you're going to lose a candidate there. And before you know it, that becomes a form of compound interest where you've actually lost out on a lot of talent. Um, And finally, one of the possibilities here is to decrease the commercial real estate costs. This is tricky as we know, because often those leases are a um, long-term sort of contract. However, we talked to a major company um, in this experimental phase, a major financial services company that said they wanted to reduce from three buildings in downtown major city to one. And that they plan to do that because they have ownership rights over some of that. So I think part of it is this is a you know a bit of an ad hoc list, but what you need to do is try to quantify as much as you can what those benefits might look like. And how I would assume that 
a policy like this, while it's super flexible and that's the biggest advantage in general, it also has to be pretty clear, right? To your point, JP, it can feel a little loose, if you will, which makes everyone uncomfortable. So can you talk a little bit about, so for example, the real estate piece, right? Do Will costs come down or do you have to rethink now the entire um, office space, if you will, to, to support this? And then maybe actually costs would go up. Um, how do you figure out who works from where? <laughs> Is it just everyone's choice or do you put more specific guidelines in place? Yeah, this is very important. You know, in our model that we wrote in the first report, and which we're continuing to build out, we we estimate that about ten percent of companies are going to land in a mostly anywhere mode, and there are already you know very um, high profile examples of companies that tout that they are you know we're anywhere, we don't even have offices, that kind of thing. They're the exception. On the other side, we think about thirty percent of companies, and some big names have indicated they are in this category. Are going to be uh, companies that are primarily office based. Apple has said this. Tim Cook at Apple has said this. Netflix, Reed Hastings, same thing. Uh, we're hearing similar indications from Amazon that they're saying when we can get back to the office, we will. That leaves sixty percent of companies who are in the middle. But that's a big middle, and there's a lot of variety across that middle. It includes companies that are going to do. By our definition, if even only 10% of your workers are working two or more days a week from a remote location, we will call that anywhere work in the what we're calling the uh, office uh, plus anywhere hybrid model. But that is a very different decision than someone who says, you know what, come to the come to the office one day a week, which is still an office anywhere hybrid model, uh, but has very different characteristics, very different cost and leadership and organizational implications. So uh, JP will is working on that model right now. And so I'm just trusting he has everything smart to say about it, JP. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, I think everything James said is an important precursor. There are many models that will come out of this. But look at a company like Dropbox. They have been very definitive in what they plan to do, which is they're going to keep offices, but they're going to renovate them. And to your point, Sharon, they're going to make investments in those office spaces to turn them into what they call Dropbox Studio. And that is a different model. There will be no permanent desks there. It will all be focused around collaboration. So I go to the office under this model for team-based collaboration activities of various sorts. And it's all connected by you know, digital you know, conversations about how we're going to use that time, et cetera. Other companies we are talking about, and we're doing some research into this as well, are looking at a hot desk or hoteling model where you do not have a permanent desk, but you can reserve a desk for a day, for a week, even a month, where you're gonna have people coming in and out of the office. Um, and this has been a model that's been around actually over 20 years. I was a management consultant 22 years ago and I had a hot desk. Um, so there are different options here. I think the thing is to be very intentional, to think about why are we coming to the office, to make it an attraction, that there are reasons for me to come to the office as a worker. That attraction could be direct collaboration with peers. It could be technology that you put into conference rooms to make that happen. It could be that you have a company, frankly, that has a lot of frontline workers who interface with your knowledge workers. Let's remember 40% of workers actually have jobs that simply aren't suited to anywhere work. So we're not um, 
looking at that extreme scale that, that James described, we're not looking at anywhere first as the key model. We're looking at a hybrid that creates flexibility, improves engagement, improves employee experience, and ultimately serves customers more effectively. I'll just say from the interviews we're having, there's two numbers that keep coming back in people's conversations. The one number is just what percent of our employees will will be in an anywhere plus office hybrid role. Uh, and that is, as JP said, some roles just don't allow for that. And some it's more challenging to do so and so on. Uh, and so you do have to end up picking a number. Uh, you know, our own company, we're picking a number internally. There are uh, a large financial services company that we spoke with. Their target number started out at 50%. And then they had to go in and fill in the details of who's in that number and who is not. And how do we communicate clearly whether you are in or out of that number? Because remember, people still believe that given being given this flexibility is a perk. It's something that you've earned. It it's shows that your boss trusts you and likes you all of which is actually going to be a problem because it shouldn't be a favor that the company does to you or for you. Uh, it really should be a function of your role and a function of the processes of the organization which allow for this. So, you know, you'll pick a number. That number will change, of course, but you'll pick a number. The second number to think about is how many days a week. And this is one of the big thresholds here is when you say two days a week, you're essentially, meaning two days from a non-office location, you're essentially saying we're still going to need the same amount of office space roughly, where everything roughly will be the same, just a little more ghost town on Mondays and Fridays probably. Uh, the, the other option is once you cross to three days a week out of five, it really does begin to change the thinking about the office. And you have to start doing some of the things JP is talking about, about thinking about Will people have permanent desks? Will some roles have permanent desks and other roles not? Will there be entire spaces that are designed for short-term collaboration and, and other spaces that are designed just for one-day meetings uh, of teams? All of that will need to happen once you cross that three-day-a-week threshold. So, you know, in our analysis, we're, we're encouraging people to pick some numbers, but keep them flexible because as you move toward those numbers, they will need to change. And let me just add one more thing on that, which is academics have been looking at this for some time. Um, and as you might imagine, they're weighing in on the productivity impact of anywhere work. And there are three recent studies, one from Harvard Business School, one from a mixed set of academics, and a third that looked at um, income. And in the HBS study, they found a 4.4% improvement in productivity for knowledge workers. Another study found an increase of 7% among those who migrated from the office to remote work. And a third study said that among people who earned 150K a year or more, so sort of high value talent in monetary terms, they were overperforming their own productivity uh, expectations by 11.5%. So if you are targeting the right kinds of workers, people who are in knowledge uh, work areas who are suited to anywhere work, you actually can build a plan that expects more from them. So based on what you said, JP, how should firms and leaders be thinking about compensation within their anywhere work strategy, especially if employees are moving to areas with a lower cost of living? Right. And so, again, now we have to make that distinction that the, the sort of spectrum that James described earlier 
we're talking about the extreme of this, which is people actually moving elsewhere. Now, there's lots of evidence to suggest this is happening, specifically New York and San Francisco. Um, there's already been a drop in rental prices, in some real estate uh, purchase prices, because a number of people are migrating out to take advantage of anywhere work. And this is partly because of the pandemic. I mean, they sort of they can do what they want. Um, but if their employers sort of formalize that in the future, the question becomes, do we then adjust their compensation to reflect that they live now in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or New Hampshire when they lived in Boston? Um, and so we did some research on this. We looked at some of the early movers in this. Um, I think it's important to state up front, it's not that exotic to give people different comp based on cost of living. This would be a standard practice if one were hiring. If you have an office in you know, just a lower cost city, you're gonna be competitive with local uh, market. That's kind of breaking down here, especially in the technology industry. The, the realization is that people who move from a place like San Francisco to a lower cost place are still contributing the same amount of productivity or more when they get to be anywhere workers. And so the more employee centric idea would be maybe that we don't change their compensation. But here's what we found. For companies that have um, a trouble, let's say second tier employers, trouble with recruitment and retention, they are more likely in the tech sector to not adjust the comp when people move away. In other words, you don't wanna lose, You know, if you're a company like, um, you know, uh, let's say I don't want to name names here, but somebody who's sort of a second tier tech vendor, they're going to be in a position where they think I'm going to lose my employees to the top tier. Whereas the big names have said we're going to make some adjustments um, and we're going to do it very judiciously. I do want to warn that occasionally something will happen where you'll get a big article written about you. VMware unfortunately found themselves in this position where a big article was written because the employee said, when I moved out of San Francisco, I took an 18% pay cut. So you have a number of factors. What's the right thing to do for the business? Uh, what are competitors doing? How much retention will I lose? And what will be the reputational harm on Glassdoor down the line if I do this? Yeah, that's an interesting point because you, you started by saying, well, if you're a top tier tech vendor, you probably basically could get away with dropping compensation. If you're a lower tier, you can't. But if you're a top tier and you do it, you may become a lower tier, at least from a recruiting perspective, pretty quickly because that information is going to become public knowledge or at least well known amongst the community of resources that you'd be wanting to attract and your overall employee experience level just goes down. Absolutely. And James, I don't know if you want to weigh in on some of the, the EX and psychology impacts here, but uh, I, I, I think that there is quite a conversation. There's no one right answer on this one. Yeah, it's definitely a topic that makes people respond maybe emotionally first. Um, and it's been interesting as we've talked to clients and, and even internally analysts from different perspectives will say, you know, wait a minute, the, the government, for example, does this. They have entire tables that they consult for wherever they move you in the military, as an easy example. Uh, your pay gets adjusted based on the cost of living. This, sh this shouldn't be a big deal. And, and other people who are saying you're depriving people of their of their freedom to move around and and Really, it comes down to that question JP was implying, which is what's the psychology of the employee experience? And you know, we're we're big proponents of the role of empathy 
um, in the future of work. The, the challenge is empathy doesn't automatically mean you give every employee everything they think they want. Um, and so empathy is partly about having meaningful conversations with people, communicating clearly how you're going to operate as an organization and giving people opportunities to act within a framework that they can feel makes sense for them. Um, and that's and that's true in so many dimensions of employee experience, not just this one, but obviously this one, especially when a big policy change is announced, it does you know have a tendency to push people into to reacting rather than thinking through you know what the policy might mean for their particular role. I'll just say that there are all kinds of little minutiae here which also will add up psychologically, emotionally. Now, do you pay when someone moves? Do you pay to relocate them? Well, uh, you know, you would have paid to relocate someone to the headquarters. So does that mean that you pay to relocate them to their new home in Boise, Idaho? Um, th these are all challenging issues. Again, no right, no one right answer except the overarching answer, which is communicate clearly, establish your policies, make sure they apply equally. This is a topic we haven't even brought up in this conversation at this point, but the the at a time where diversity and inclusion are uh, having a huge spotlight uh, on them now for reasons that are so uh, compelling, to not bring this up is potentially harmful to this conversation. So let's just deal with this for a second. You have a situation where, well, hey, we can hire people from all over. Maybe we can pay them differently. Um, but then do we have controls in place to make sure that we're not creating adverse biases in that bias against particular people, lifestyles, races, locations, um, anybody, for example, who has now the opportunity to work from home, but still has uh, children at home that they have to provide care for and coordinate care for. If you can say, hey, look, we're giving you this flexibility. We don't want to pay you as much by giving you that flexibility, but you you better be online from nine to five all day long and, and not you know go to the corner to pick up your kids from school at three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, because where were you? You know, th that creates the kind of adverse emotional climate that we that we need to avoid and actively protect against to create parity. Parity is the, a, a new word maybe for some people in this conversation who haven't thought about what does it mean to have parity? Uh, it means that everybody, regardless of location, has the same access to promotion, to training, to advancement, the opportunity to be mobile within the organization and how they apply their talent. And that's, that's an enormous cultural change. So as we're thinking about things to make sure we don't ignore or accidentally blow up as we're moving in the, this direction, this is definitely one of those territories. To flip that around on the other end, um, I would think that potentially anywhere work, the ability to improve diversity inclusion should go up with anywhere work in general. We didn't mention that as a key benefit to employees and employers, but I assume it is. Is that, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely should be uh, something that you have to intentionally plan into this. Um, you know, I think that that's kind of the key. Now, some of the big tech companies who are, uh, again, they're kind of ahead on this because they, the way they operate is very conducive to this even before the pandemic. Many of them have made this a goal. That is to say, we are going to recruit sort of in tandem people who are remote alongside uh, graduates of historically black colleges and universities or, you know, do something in the Atlanta area where we know there's a huge talent base of African-Americans, just to use one example. This can also help, by the way, with uh, folks with disabilities who may have been prevented for various reasons from 
you know, typical commutes, this may lower the friction for that. But I think as with anything, it has to be a conscious decision where there is a plan in place where your DNI people are working with the remote work leaders. And by the way, companies who are getting into this are hiring a director of remote work, or as we call it, anywhere work, to coordinate across all the different functions technology and business and leadership and HR to make sure that this works well. And there are trip wires that a lot of companies don't realize they're in. They're about to trip into things like, hey, now our call center employees can handle uh, calls from home. Uh, and this has turned out to work spectacularly well for many of the clients we're discussing this with, even though they assumed originally it would be a disaster. It's worked out very well. But now they're all of a sudden realizing, oh, that means we can only hire people for those roles who have great bandwidth who have you know broadband connections that are stable and then suddenly you realize that actually cuts out an entire class of people that we might have otherwise hired to come into our offices so one client we spoke to is saying we're trying to aggressively enable people to to work from home in a call center role but we still need to have the capacity to bring people in who don't have access to broadband either because they're in too rural of a location or they're not in a place that's been built out effectively uh, or they don't have the money uh, and if they don't have the money if that's the issue should you pay for their broadband? And the answer is probably yes. These are all questions that you're going to ask. They have a bearing on parity. They have a bearing on uh, your diversity and inclusion initiatives. And then of course, they have a bearing on the overall question of will anywhere work be a successful cultural transition for us because it is a cultural transition. James, you started touching on this a little bit, but maybe as we close out this conversation, what are those risks that are before firms as they evaluate their anywhere work strategy um, above and beyond the few things that you had mentioned? I'm sure there are other things that you can delve into. Uh, you'll cringe when I say this, but there are three things you need to care about. <laughs> there are managers, managers, and managers. Ah, see what I did there? The The issue is really compelling. I don't want us to overlook this. People are saying, oh, well, we need this technology and we need to have this particular approach and so on. In the end, you have hired your direct managers or promoted them more likely because they were really good at particular things and making sure other people did those particular things. But many, many of them do it by observation, by watching, by checking in physically and Having them rethink that is going to be hard. It's emotionally difficult. It's a change in personality. I mean, if someone's uh, 25 years into their career and you're saying to them, we are asking you to completely overhaul the way you collaborate with a team instead of watch over a team. Those are very different things. Uh, if we don't take the time to do that, we're setting them up for, for failure, which sets the team up for failure. And then later, and this is my worst fear, someone will come back and say, oh, that anywhere work thing didn't work. You know, it was a failure. And I'll have to say, ah, it's because you did it wrong. And, and we don't want that. So you really make sure that the managers don't become the weak link here. How do they do that? I mean, that's, that's sort of easy to say and hard to do. I mean, how do you assess the ability of your management layer, if you will, or team in the organization to be able to make that shift or that pivot? Well, EQ or you know your emotional quotient, your emotional um, ability to relate to people has 
obviously become more and more important in management roles for the last several decades. And now it's absolutely front and center. Are managers people who can empathize and not, again, to use the word empathy correctly, to appreciate where someone else is situated emotionally, intellectually, doesn't mean you just give them whatever they want, uh, but it does mean that you at least understand where they're coming from. And can you negotiate or discuss with them how they can uh, use the resources they have and that you're giving them in order to accomplish a task that you both agree is meaningful. That is a much different conversation from here's your list of tasks and I'm going to check on you each day to see if you've done them. And, and there are, again, some obvious mistakes that you can make such as, uh oh, everyone's working from home. Let's buy software that monitors all of our employees, makes them look in the camera every hour to see whether or not they are actually in front of their laptops. And even when, you know, one company famously, uh, when their employees disappear from the camera and came back, they had to write an explanation for why they weren't in front of their laptop. Even if it's something like, I had to go to the bathroom. Okay, that's obviously not going to help your managers become more empathetic, become more of a mentor and coach rather than a taskmaster. So there's some obvious things we can stop doing. There's some obvious things we can start doing. But there, let's face it, there will be some percentage of managers who do not have some of those skills. Um, and maybe you need to find other roles for those people that don't require that level of, of emotional interaction and collaboration. And you can start to manage people on their outcomes rather than FaceTime. Focus on what is the value they're providing rather than just watching. You know, there's a lot of wasted time in offices as well. And one other thing you can do is you can actually turn remoteness into a superpower online. There's a great article that was written by a Northwestern uh, Kellogg School business professor who said, you know, people think creativity is always better in person. And sometimes it's actually better online. In fact, generally it is. Why? Because when we're in a big group setting, there are social dynamics and hierarchies that take over. Your junior people may not speak up. They may not be contributing ideas because they feel cowed by the group dynamic. And it turns out that all of that social disinhibition that happens when people mouth off on Twitter or whatever, it actually can be really helpful in this case because the lowest totem pole person may have the best idea and they may be better positioned to actually express it online in a setting that is you know, collaborative um, rather than in person. So I think good managers and leaders are going to learn to understand that the medium itself lends itself to new kinds of management techniques um, and, and makes those work for the company. I love leaving on that note, JP. So thank you both for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, James. Thanks, JP. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.